A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. Why are all these murders here? Why? Well, one reason is that we have a homicidal maniac, apparently, who's been running around, and we know he's killed 10 people. He had been murdered by a man named Herbert Mullen. This was an act against women. It was a declaration of war, and I was ready for it. From 1972 to 1973, locals in Santa Cruz, California, were terrorized by not one, but two serial killers. Their names were Edmund Kemper and Herbert Mullen. They operated independently and over an 11-month period claimed the lives of 21 individuals. Young children, teenagers, female hitchhikers, even a priest was slain. No one was safe. I'm Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is Mind of a Monster, the co-ed killer and Herbert Mullen. Episode 3, The Bodies Pile Up. It's early January 1973, and as locals in Santa Cruz, California, pack away their Christmas decorations, students return from the holidays and ready themselves for a new semester. One such student is 18-year-old Cynthia Ann Shaw, who works as a live-in babysitter while she studies at Cabrillo College. Cynthia, or Cindy as she is known, is the middle of three siblings and described as being a warm individual who's fun to be around. On January 8, 1973, a rainy Monday, Cynthia decides to hitch a ride to class. The car that pulls up is a 1969 Ford Galaxy 500 and the man behind the wheel is a few years her senior. Even seated, it's obvious that he's big, well over six feet. But she feels safe enough to get into the car. This is to be her last journey. Unknown to her, 
Edmund Kemper has been prowling the streets for his next victim. And, as he would later outline to Donald T. Lundy, she fits the criterion perfectly. Okay, then what was next? Next one was Cynthia Shaw. Shaw? S-C-H-A-W-L. When was that? That was January 8th. I just bought myself a brand new 22 automatic pistol. I mean, I just received it from the store. About five days ago. Where'd you pick her up? On mission. Up between Bay and Laurel somewhere. San Francisco? No, not in San Francisco. Where was she? I go? picked up a few girls up from the campus that evening, you know, late afternoon. I was very frustrated because I didn't get anybody that picked up a couple of really nice girls. But they were uh there's too many cars around, too many people watching them get in. They might remember the next day, you know. So you let them go? Yeah, put them, took them where they wanted to go and they'll sweat. Once in the car, Kemper drives Cynthia Shaw to a wooded area and shoots her dead with his newly purchased 22 caliber gun before dismembering her body. Over the following weeks, parts of Cynthia are discovered scattered near the beach. Like as one commentator noted, a macabre jigsaw. First her arms and legs, then her chest, then her pelvis. Authorities are only able to identify her using fingerprints. In this episode, I want to investigate the toll the killings took on the community and the role the news media played in reporting the crimes. I begin by speaking to Tom Honig, a reporter who joined the Santa Cruz Sentinel just before the first victims went missing. I arrived here in 1971 looking for a newspaper job. I was a sports writer, and and that was my background. And I got hired uh, in Santa Cruz by the guy who said, well, I have an opening on the police beat. I'll give you a shot at it. And if it doesn't work out, then no hard feelings. It pays $150 a week. And I went to work on the police beat. And I had never covered a court. I had never covered police news. I had never covered news at all. And I had to study up uh, pretty damn quickly. And one thing I found out about journalism is some people are born to it and some people aren't. And I think I was just born to it. What do you mean? Did the questions come naturally or did the writing come naturally? What, what about it feels natural to you? Well, for me, it was explaining difficult things. I, I, what I remember about reading the newspaper when I was a kid was I didn't understand half the stories. And then all of a sudden I realized it's not my fault. I'm not stupid. It's just they're not very well written. I wanted to, to explain things simply so that people could understand them. And that was pretty good philosophy because it's still, I still feel that way all these years later. In a case like Kemper, there were a lot of wild rumors and we were in a position in the newspaper to report on what was true, what was not true, and put the whole thing into context, which it needed to have happen. I was concerned about a group of vigilantes raising up and taking the law into their own hands. In hindsight, looking at it with 2020 vision, the wave of murders, the disappearances, it all seems like it happened in short order. 
It seemed like it didn't stop. It was relentless. But what was it like for you reporting on it at the time? Well, it started my very first day of work where I came in and, and had a very short story to do. They had the identity of a woman whose skull was found up in the mountains. And I thought, well, this is a little strange. But this had been going on for a while. And there were other issues going on. But, but then the, there suddenly would be these strange murder cases, a body floating in on the beach, something found up in the mountains. And then all of a sudden it gained in strength and, and it went from just, this is odd, to what's going on here. You're thrust into the throes of murders and disappearances. You didn't get trained in that. What was it like for you to all of a sudden be this young guy faced with gruesome murders? Well, it was, it, it was a little overwhelming. And, it, and at the end of the day, I would go home and pour myself a beer and, and think, do I know how to do this? But I had a, a fortunate circumstance because the woman that I was competitive with, who was the reporter for the Watsonville newspaper, was very experienced. And we became friends. We became close friends. We were competitors. It's the, definitely the first time I heard the word frenemy. <laughs> and I thought, well, she knows what she's doing. So I am going to write my story the best I know how. And... Then I would read her story in the same day's newspaper, and I would learn from that. I say, okay, I didn't, I didn't think that was important. But then every once in a while, some fact would come up that I thought was important, and she didn't have. So slowly, I learned what the reader needed to know. And the main, the main thing the reader wanted to know was, of course, what happened, and and are they at any risk? I was on a manual typewriter at the time, and I'd write the story, and I've got five people looking at me. And but there's a lot of pressure to perform and to write well. And I hadn't been a reporter all that long, so I just had to take a deep breath. I would always take a, five minutes by myself on the way back to the office just to breathe and think about my story and put it in context. Because if I didn't, I wouldn't have been able to write. As the media tries their best to report the facts and law enforcement searches in vain for a suspect, both Kemper and Mullen are evolving as killers. Kemper has moved back in with his mother, who works as an administrative assistant at UCSC. He started using her staff pass to gain access to the campus and for parking. He displays it clearly in the windshield for everyone to see, including female hitchhikers, who see it as a badge of safety. Surely no one affiliated with the university could be behind the killings. As Kemper is evolving as a killer, Herbert Mullen is also making changes. By January 1973, he's moved out of his parents' home and into his own apartment. And he tries to sign up as a Marine like his father. He's rejected and subsequently begins to focus his feelings of anger on a childhood friend, Jim Genera. Mullen claims Genera used to sell him drugs, which had sent him on his destructive path. It becomes an obsession. He buys himself a $24, 22 caliber revolver from the local store, telling the owner that he wanted to use it for target practice. What the store owner does not know is that this would be on humans. What I'm about to play for you is an interview with Herbert Mullen, recorded by Donald T. Lundy in 1973, shortly after his arrest. Lundy is digging into Mullen's motives to figure out why he committed his crimes. If Jim Genera had, uh, uh, you know, given me some of the Benzedrine that he was using, you know, 
if he had sold me benzedrine while he was using it, uh, you know, then I wouldn't have had this trouble. I wouldn't have, have wanted to wreak revenge on him. You know, he, he didn't sell me the Benzedrine generic, you know, he didn't sell me the Benzedrine because he'd rather see me in the, you know, he'd, he'd rather have that picture of me for five years in dementia precox, you know, than to have me, you know, sell me a lid and, and, a, and a roll of Bennings at the same time, you know. He just would sell you a lid but no Bennings. Yeah, you know, he wouldn't even tell me about the Bennings. Why do you think he had it in for you to do that to you? Because I'm a better sadist. He was jealous? Yeah. What Mullen is saying here is truly bizarre and points to the twisted state of his mind at the time. He claims that while Genera had sold him marijuana, he'd refused to sell him a particular drug known as Benzedrine to keep Mullen in a state of, as he phrases it, dementia precox. Mullen also claims that the reason for this is that Mullen is better at being a sadist than Genera. It's the end of January 1973, and Mullen takes his newly purchased gun to Jim Genera's house, where he cruelly shoots dead Jim and his wife Joan. Their bodies would not be discovered for a couple of days. It's Mullen's next victims who are to be found first at a popular tourist attraction, the Mystery Spot. Terry Medina of the Santa Cruz Sheriff's Office was a detective on the scene. The mystery spot is one of these places that tourists go to, to watch water roll uphill. You know, things don't seem like what they're supposed to be. I'm sure they have them all over the United States and in other countries where there's just a place that seems so off from the human experience that water will not roll downhill, it will roll uphill. It is this very strange place. And within 300 yards of this very spot, it was a triple murder with these two young kids and, and their mom. Kathy Francis is 29 years old and mother to her two sons, David, nine, and Damon, four. It was raining, it was really late in the afternoon coming on evening and we get there and the crime scene was obvious a lot of motion a lot of activity it's a very small place this young woman was beaten and stabbed to death and so I remember stepping into another room and there was bunk beds and I looked up in the bunk bed and there is a uh, Chinese checker set, and there's two kids on either side of the checker set, and one of them had a knife st stuck straight out of his chest, and the other one was just had been stabbed to death, and that um, you don't get that out of your out of your mind. When I, I got home that night about four in the morning, it was probably the first time looking backwards that um, I was really kind of affected my head. I cannot begin to even imagine 
You know, we all sit in these office chairs and we study it clinically, but to be out there frontline, first to see it, I cannot even imagine the trauma. You forget, you forget, people forget what you're up against. Yeah, I knew there was something wrong for the first time with me because I got home at four o'clock in the morning and I turned on the TV set and what comes on was the Green Beret with John Wayne and it was the end of the movie and there's this little kid actor who is looking in these helicopters that are coming back from combat for the soldier that has been taking care of him for all this time. And he kept saying, Papa San, where's Papa San? And Papa San had been killed in the movie. And that's when I lost it right there. I started crying. I grabbed a, a pad of paper, a full pad of paper, and I started writing, and I never let my hand off the pen or the paper for about four hours. I don't know what I was writing. I think I was writing about my marriage, death, human beings, I, I don't know. It's just remarkable what you're saying, that no matter how much training you have, none of us is built to cope with that scene. I don't think there's anything wrong with you. I don't think anybody, unless he's a psychopath himself, nobody's prepared to cope with something like that. I don't think so either. And, you know, that's before anybody knew anything about mental health, PTSD. PTSD. Yeah. It was like, you know, suck it up, have a drink. But the very next day, another bombshell murder hits, and there's a double homicide in the city of Santa Cruz involving a young husband and wife named Genera on Western Drive in the northern part of the city, and they had both been shot to death in a horrific crime scene at their house. And working with the Santa Cruz detectives, we somehow put together a link between the Generas and the location of Kathy Francis and her kids. And it turns out that the Generas were killed actually first. We found them second, but they were actually killed the day before. If he had sold me Benzedrine while he was using it, I wouldn't have, have wanted to wreak revenge on him. There's a connection between the two brutal slayings. It would later transpire that Mullen visited the cabin at the mystery spot because that's where he believed Jim Genera, the man Mullen blamed for selling him drugs, to be living. But when he knocked on the door of the cabin, it was Kathy Francis who opened it. She was helpful and gave Mullen Jim Genera's new address. Mullen proceeded to hunt down Genera and murder him and his wife, Joan. He then returned to Kathy Francis's house and butchered her to death, along with her two small children, presumably to get rid of witnesses. It's a horrific act of menace. And I think it points to a layer of foresight, planning, and premeditation that flies in the face of Mullen's later claims of insanity and delusions. He killed Jim Genera in a twisted act of revenge. He then killed Kathy Francis and her sons simply because they might be able to identify him. I think he knew exactly what he was doing.
From my years of research, I am painfully aware that murder is like a pebble in a lake. The effects ripple and spread, touching the lives of all those who knew and loved the victims. For author Emerson Murray and his family, the death of Jim Genera was personal. Your dad was friends with Jim Genera. Tell me about the friendship. Tell me what you knew growing up. Okay, so my my dad and Jim had both lived in these apartments called the Boxer Apartments in Ben Lomond. I don't know if they lived together at that point. And then from the Boxer Apartments, a whole group of people went to move into this place called the Holiday Cabins. And it sort of became a commune. And my dad was dating my mom, but he had he was sort of older and he was sort of, I don't want to say the handyman, but he was very useful around there. He had the bus. He drove the big psychedelic bus. And they had moved my dad into the big central house. And my dad said, well, I was dating your mother. And so I was going up to San Francisco a lot to see your mother. And so I, I figured I don't need all that space. So I moved into one of the cabins and I moved in with Jim. So my dad and, and Jim lived together for a time. And my dad always talked about Jim being sort of psychic. Like he was, he had the psychic energy, he just knew things were going to happen. And he was sort of an intense guy. And they had always had these great conversations late at night. Jim was murdered two months before I was born. So my dad had always had this picture on his wall of himself and Jim Genera and his friend hiking. And so it was always there and always pointed at and, and said, oh, that was Jim. And it was always clear to us how Jim had died, that he had been murdered by a man named Herbert Mullen. It was something that I remember my parents being at parties and talking to other parents about. It was just in this area for my parents' generation, it was just, you know, it was the hot news of the day. February 11, 1973, two weeks after Mullen's mass murder of the Generas, Kathy Francis, and her two sons, and just over a month after Kemper's murder of Cynthia Shaw, the remains of another female are discovered in Bonnie Dune, Santa Cruz County. They belong to Cabrillo College student Mary Guilfoyle, Herbert Mullen's second victim and the fourth female hitchhiker to be taken during the murder spree. She'd been reported as missing the previous October. Coming up, Ed Kemper claims his next victims and relations between police, press, and students reach a fever pitch. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, and U.S. News & World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. We have another female hitchhiker, Cynthia Shaw, murdered, and there are still others missing. We have Kathy Francis and her two sons brutally shot and stabbed to death. And we have Jim and Joan Genera killed in a mass shooting. With all this death, I want to unpack the strain on relations between police, press, and local students. I speak with Terry Medina. It sounds frenetic. I mean, there's so much happening at this time. How did you manage the information you were going to give to the public? So the crescendo of the media was in overdrive because there's not only these, these murders now happening more frequently, but there's these co-eds that are missing all over Santa Cruz County and the Bay Area, the greater San Francisco Bay Area, were trying to tell young people not to hitchhike. And the media onslaught was just huge. The sheriff's office had no public information officer, so the lieutenant in charge of investigations was trying to handle the media. That became a full-time job, and to the extent that any one of us had to keep talking to the media, because sometimes the, the managers didn't have enough information or there wasn't enough to feed this frenzy of, of the media, but we had to be careful of how much information to give out, but every minute that you spend with the media is time that you're not working on the case. Tom Honig was reporting on the crimes for the Santa Cruz Sentinel. This responsibility to report all of these gory, scary details, how did you balance that and what were the challenges? It's for public consumption, of course, but not everybody is prepared to read about all of these violent crimes. Well, I very quickly got used to summarizing what the police department said. 
the police departments and even the district district attorney's office was kind of a it was a macho experience back then. You had to engage with them aggressively. I didn't sit back and shyly say something. If if they were holding out on me, I would I would give it back to them. And there was a kind of a sports mentality going on. But I guess you just take a deep breath and you try to act professionally. That makes a lot of sense. I think about you as this young guy who didn't sign up for crime and like what that must have been for you. How do I write about women being mutilated for, you know, public consumption? It's a complicated pressure that most of us don't face unless we choose to face it. Well, and and also it's it's funny to look back on it in today's ethics. I think the fact, you know, that just even you're saying women are mutilated takes on a special feeling today in the in the, in the aftermath of me too and things but feminism was just getting going at the time and there were some men who were at, who felt at risk as well so it wasn't just a gender thing by now the student community is in fear as Louita Spengler explains there'd been a number of killings and disappearances was this on the student radar is it what people are talking about um, I think it was was either Time Magazine or Newsweek that identified Santa Cruz as the murder capital of the, the world. But that certainly sharpened our radar, so to speak. Well, and I imagine it sharpened the radars, too, of all the parents. For sure, my parents were worried um, and told me to try to be as safe as possible. And I said, yes, I will be as safe as possible. The question of hitchhiking is one I need to address. It's simply not something that happens in the United States in the same way anymore. But in the 1970s, people caught rides with strangers every day. But after all the disappearances and murders, why were students still doing it? Louita Spangler hitchhiked herself all the time. I want to talk to you about hitchhiking for a quick second. Hitchhiking was not uncommon for everyone on campus to get around, right? Well, it wasn't uncommon. I mean, for example, a friend of mine... Her job started at five in the morning, and there was no public transportation then. And we were students, even though many of us came from privileged backgrounds, we didn't have a lot of money on our own, and so it wasn't like we were running around buying cars right and left. So we had to hitchhike. And likewise, if we were going to go anywhere, like up to San Francisco, we would hitchhike. And hitchhiking was also seen, I think, particularly among women as a declaration of independence. You know, like, men do this, I can do it too. And that's a lot of what we were doing, you know. Men have traditionally done this, I can do it too. So there was definitely that in the air. I love hearing your description of this, because when I hear the word hitchhiker, I go straight to murder. I don't know if it's because I'm a child of the 80s or if it's an artifact of what I do for a living, but if I see a hitchhiker on the road, it's jarring. I grew up in a time when you just didn't do that. Nobody hitchhiked, and it's probably because of serial killers. It's like what the, the Manson family did to the hippies, you know? The murders in Santa Cruz took took that veneer of independence and and that statement away from hitchhiking, I think, and it really did change the atmosphere of it. To get a male perspective on hitchhiking, I return to Tom Honig. So personally, for you, did you have female friends and were you worried about them? Sure. And if I would go on a date or something and they, we would obviously be talking about it, I would say, you're not hitchhiking, are you? That was sort of the main thing. 
What are your thoughts about the role of feminism and hitchhiking and these murders? Well, I think I feel maybe the same way today as I did back then because I was horrified by it. But then on the other hand, looking at it practically, I thought a woman hitchhiking, especially alone or even with another woman, just seems to be more dangerous because there are men who will assault you. As the 70s were relaxing in sexual mores, men were confused by it. I probably was one of them, confused by the changing standards. And there was a little hint of naughtiness about women hitchhikers. Ooh, women hitchhikers, I'm going to pick one up and we're going to have an affair. We're going to go out and have sex somewhere. Whereas a woman was looking at it and saying, I want to get somewhere. So. You know, it goes back to that old argument of take back the night. I mean, be aggressive, do what you want, you're free. This is a free society. But then again, my comparison was, you don't walk into a bar with a stack of $20 bills and stack them up on the bar in plain sight. Somebody's gonna take it. There are bad people in the world. And whether something's right or whether it's wrong, you have to protect yourself. That That was how I took it. So law enforcement was up against this problem of needing to warn women not to hitchhike. You, as a reporter, are up against this problem of needing to warn women not to hitchhike. What were the relationships like between you and the students? How you're reporting on this, did it sour? Did they trust you? Did they believe you? There wasn't that much of a conflict as far as with the students. They were very open and, oh, you're at the newspaper, that's cool and they just automatically trusted me. I would show them my card. Did I understand that correctly? That one of the ways you would actually investigate these horrible crimes was to pick up hitchhikers yourself and talk to them? Yeah, because I wanted to know what their mentality was. And I'll never forget one of the women that I picked up. She said, I'm not worried, I can take care of myself. I carry this can of mace, see? And she handed it to me. And I said, wow. probably isn't real smart. You don't know that much about me. It's probably not that smart to give it to me. Here, you better take it back. Wow. Even in the face of all these murders, there was a brazenness. Or was it a naivete? What would you say? I think it was kind of a combination of both. I think mostly a naivete. And also, you know, that one woman said, well, the bus doesn't run that often. I gotta, I've got to get around. And I understand that. I hitchhiked when I was in college. That was the way you got around. Despite police and press warnings, women continue to hitchhike. And on February 5th, 1973, there are two UCSC students on campus looking to hitch a ride. 23-year-old Rosalind Thorpe and 20-year-old Alice Liu. Rosalind has just completed her studies in linguistics and psychology at UCSC and has finished attending a lecture. Alice has been studying late at the library. Ed Kemper recalls taking both women in his interview with Donald T. Lundy. You picked them up together? One right after the other. You separately? The Lou girl. I don't don't think the Lou girl would have gotten in my car. But she looked like she was a very, very cautious hitchhiker anyway, because she she waited until she could see somebody in the car before she started to come out and smile together. So you already had Rosalind in the car? Yeah, in front. They looked like a couple, you know. And then on top of that, I had an A-sticker. It's sickening to hear this testimony. Knowing that Alice was hesitant, her gut was telling her not to get into the car. But she did so anyway. 
Perhaps because there was already somebody else in the car. Or maybe it was the presence of a staff ticket on the window that put her fears to rest. Perhaps it was the driver's friendly demeanor. Whatever the reason, the two young women get into Ed Kemper's car from which they would not escape. I return to Louita Spengler. Tell us about Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Liu. What were they like as people? Ros was a member of my community. She was a lesbian. What I especially remember about her is that she made pies. And that was a revelation to me because I thought, gosh, people can make pies. You know, I mean, you don't just go out and buy them from bakeries. You can actually make pies. Alice was studying self-defense, basically. Uh, she was small. She was also very bright. Um, both of them were really smart. Were you guys in karate for self-defense? What brought you there? I mean, I was in karate because I couldn't take it before in Palos Verdes. And it was it was part of, part of my self-celebration that was going on, you know? And I was very athletic. So um, when I had the opportunity to actually take karate, I did, you know? I thought, whoa, this is wonderful. I get to, you know, be strong and be athletic and it's great. I don't know what, what Alice's motivation was, but that's what I was taking in. It was just part of enjoying being a human being for the first time. When these young women went missing, were you immediately concerned? Where did your thoughts go? I was concerned. My thoughts first went to the fact that, you know, even though we had these serial murders going on and it was clear that something terrible was happening at that point, still, the police's first reaction was always, well, maybe they were spending the night with a boyfriend. And of course, that's their go-to place. Or they didn't take it as instantly seriously as we did. But yes, we were alarmed because um, we knew, you know, at that point, people didn't just go away. You know, they that just didn't happen, especially within the lesbian community. There was no reason to. Well, you mentioned the lesbian community, and I found this so interesting. Suspicion fell upon the lesbian community. What was that like? I think that the police recognized a pattern with, uh, with some of the murders that independent women tended to be targeted. I mean, naturally, because they were hitchhiking. I mean, that was already a declaration of independence. But they did see that the lesbian community seemed to be in some way targeted by these murders. And so, for example, the Santa Cruz Police Department came to my apartment at one point to talk to me about, you know, the lesbian community and, you know, did I notice anything going on? And I was so paranoid because you have to remember that, that then, you know, homosexuality was illegal in many states and it was still highly targeted. And I was coming from this, this very homophobic community back in Palos Verdes. And so we had this weird interview where they were asking me about the lesbian community carefully and I was carefully not giving them very much information. It wasn't like they thought that we were implicit in the crimes or anything like that. They were bumbling around as best they could trying to figure out what was going on. That's so interesting to hear you say that. I mean, as a potentially targeted community, now you're being targeted by a serial killer, but don't necessarily trust the motives of the police. And I can see how that would be a very conflicting place to be. It was, and they were also not saying, oh, you know, look, we think that lesbians are being especially targeted. They weren't giving out very much information at all. 
And so I and my friends figured out, gosh, this seems to be targeted at women who have a certain amount of independence, who, who often are lesbians. But that was our own figuring it out. Do you feel, or did you feel at the time, that authorities knew what they were doing? No, I didn't. I think they were taking it all very seriously. But I think that they were completely overwhelmed. During the second week of February 1973, decapitated bodies are discovered at Eden Canyon, Santa Cruz. They are identified as belonging to Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Liu. According to Kemper, he'd shot them almost immediately after abducting them and had even been waved through the security gates of UCSC with their bodies wrapped in blankets in his car. I returned to Luita. There was even a rumor going on among me and my friends that there was an argument about whose jurisdiction it was when, for example, Roz and Alice's bodies had been found because parts of their bodies had been found in the city limits and parts of their bodies were found outside of the city limits. So uh, there was possibly an argument going on between the police department and the sheriff department about whose jurisdiction it was. So I think there there was a lot of um, confusion that they really didn't know what they were doing. So you've got the police saying, take rides only from people with university stickers. And I, I just think that they were so in above their heads. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How did you feel when you discovered that your own friends had been murdered? I was furious. I was just bullshit. I was so angry. It was like everything that I had been learning in my women's studies classes had been crystallized to this one point of women hatred. I was so angry. When they told us, finally, that Roz had been murdered and that her body had been identified. That's all they told us. Uh, They didn't say how. They didn't say where she had been found. They didn't say that she had been decapitated. um, That was all information that we got through the rumor vine. You know, I mean, it was just um, so frustrating. I mean, I I completely rejected the idea of of retreating back into, you know, some little safe corner because I knew there was no safe corner, you know? This was an act against women. It was basically a declaration of war, and I was ready for it, you know? I, I was gonna fight back. While the names of young women now dominate the headlines, it is a group of teenage boys who will be next. In the next episode, Herbert Mullen's reign of terror comes to a close, but police are blindsided as the murders continue. Mind of a Monster, the co-ed killer and Herbert Mullen is brought to you by Arrow Media for ID. Your host is Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.